Oh, well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. And we will be continuing our journey together through this Old Testament wisdom book of Ecclesiastes. This morning we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 13 through 18. It's printed in the ESV translation on page 10 in your order of worship. If you'd like to turn there in your own Bibles, of course, you're welcome to. And if you want to use the dark uh, blue or black Bible there on the chair in front of you. It's found on page 521. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that one with you. It's our, our gift to you. So as you're turning there, I want to talk to you about road trips. Man, when I was younger, loved road trips. Nikki and I, we drove all over the South when we were first married because we had no kids and we could and we were poor. Gas is cheap, was cheap. So, so we, did, we drove everywhere. Then once we had one child and moved to Colorado, we drove from Colorado Springs to Memphis, Tennessee at least four or five times a year. Let me tell you, Kansas is rough, okay? It's beautiful, but it's just like an ocean flat. So we, we would do that at night. But we would take this 19-hour road trip. We would think about it. We'd just do it because we were young. Why not? It was great. Then when we moved to Boston because of some activities our daughter was involved in, we had to drive in the summer of 2017, the summer of 2018, we had to drive from Boston all the way to Minneapolis twice. And we'd never been to that part of the country before, the upper Midwest. It's beautiful. There's this one section where you're driving in, in northern Pennsylvania right next to Lake Erie. It's just gorgeous for several hours. The lake right there, just fields and mountains, breathtaking. But is exhausting on the driver, namely this guy, right? I mean, everybody else is doing their own thing. And I'm like having to lock onto the road. And then over the last several summers, hanging out with my parents and our young kids in Wyoming, this crazy thing happened. My parents have an RV and my dad's a control freak and he likes to drive. So you put those two together, ain't no one driving but him. And so I get to sit in the passenger seat and all of a sudden like, whoa, Road trips are pretty cool again. I get to look around. I can see what's going on. I can read a book. I can have a conversation. I can just veg out. It's like, man, passenger, the GPS lady's not yelling at you to do stuff. It's great. There's so much joy in the passenger seat. Love the passenger seat. And I want that to be kind of an analogy, a metaphor for where we're going to go in this passage today. So where we've been so far in the book of Ecclesiastes, right before this, we're looking at substantial wisdom versus superficial foolishness. And we saw last week that wisdom doesn't avoid sorrow because hard things can help us. Foolishness seeks to avoid sorrow. Fools, we saw last week, think that if I can change my circumstances or if I can at least maybe ignore circumstances, I can he heal my heart. And so in verses 1 through 12, we saw that fools cope through mocking and they cope through laughter, but the wise are solid because they have hope. They see the frustrations of life, but anchored in a relationship to the Creator, they live in substantial joy. Now today, having done all that, today we get to verse 13 through 18, and what the author does is he's going to apply these broad themes to believers to God's people, what we would call church world. And so if you're visiting with us today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you're actually going to have the privilege today of seeing one of these places where God's word actually critiques God's people, where he spends more time kind of looking at some of the foibles that we have under his grace. And so with that in mind, would you please again turn to either page 10 or your own Bibles, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 13 through 18. It says this, <clears throat> Consider the work of God, 
Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Now, this is God's Word. Would you pray with me? Now, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You've given us Your truth that we might know You. We pray, Lord, that as we come to a text that really talks to believers, that You would give us wisdom, give us discernment, give us repentance, Lord. We pray that we would once again see Your glorious grace and our deep need of it. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So our theme for today is this. Expecting the driver's seat and the map, we lose the joy in the passenger seat when it comes to how we live our life. And again, this passage is an in-house critique of God's people, those who have been empowered by His grace to walk in wisdom, and yet so often we don't. So we're going to jump in and let's just look together. First thing we see, one of the reasons we do this in verses 13 and 14 is we're powerless. Look with me at verse 13. He says this, he says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? So the word consider here, it kind of means the, it's the idea of to discern something or to understand something. Even in some usages, it can mean to respect It's specifically, we're supposed to have that mentality when it comes to God's control of life and our inability to control life. Only God can make straight what God has made crooked. We can't change what He has set. Life is vaporous. Life is frustrating. And we can't control it under the sun. And so wisdom doesn't try to control life. Why you think about that? Think about how much frustration comes from trying to control life. So much, right? Many of the difficulties we run into because we're trying to control something. See, wisdom lives under God's authority. Wisdom lives under God's control. And here's what's so great about this. The text tells us that when we respect God like this, when we discern that God's in control and we're not, it's not the drag we assume it will be. Look with me at verse 14. What's it say? It says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider Or alternatively, when things are pleasant, be happy. When things are bad, understand. Well, understand what? Well, the rest of the verse, that we are powerless before God. We can't edit God's plans for our lives. So when things go well, rejoice, celebrate. Be joyful in good things is wisdom. And such wisdom is powered by the gospel. See, if... If we don't believe that God is satisfied with us through Jesus, if we don't really believe that God has fully accepted us in Jesus, we're suspicious when people in the church world are a little too happy. We're suspicious when people are a little too joyful in the church world. We're kind of like, 
what do you know that I don't know? Why are you so happy? Especially we good Presbyterians who we get total depravity. We're completely evil and bad, so if you're smiling, you must not understand that. Let me give you a copy of the Westminster Confession. <laughs> I've used this before, but it's such a, it's such a great analogy. You know, I, I just happened to be flipping through channels in my late 20s, and I saw this interview, and the Lord wanted me to see this interview because this has this become one of these fundamental things in my life. I was like, yes, that's it. So I was, it was an interview with Greg Kinnear about the remake of Sabrina. And they were asking, oh, well, what was it like to star with Harrison Ford? He's such an A-lister. I mean, he's, he's Han Solo. He's Indiana Jones. He's done all these other things, and they're always really good. He's just, he seems like such a really grave man. What's Harrison Ford like? And Greg Kinnear goes, you know, from the very first moment you meet him, you just realize he is such a nice man. And you just kind of get this idea that he would do anything for you. He'd, he'd give you the shirt off his back. He's just that kind. He goes, but you never get over the feeling that at any moment, he could just pop you. <laughs> and that just cemented into my mind because you know, Christians, we think that about God, don't we? We really do. If we don't really believe that Jesus has fully satisfied God's wrath for our total depravity, then we think God is still a little bit angry. We have to perform for him. It makes us afraid to rejoice and be really happy. And we're suspicious when other church people seem too happy. And you know we're like that. But when we find satisfaction in God's grace, we can, we can receive every good thing as a gift of his grace. And we can rejoice. Rejoicing when things are going well is a very rational response. You should do that. That's living in the gospel. That's wisdom. And in that wisdom, we're then given grace to be prepared for the bad days, the days we don't understand. The days we have to go, things are going bad, I just need to consider that God is in control. We can have joy even in our powerlessness when we realize that the view from the passenger seat is so great. But there are two big obstacles in our way to doing that. When it comes to what our Christian life should look like, when it comes to really appropriating this wisdom God has given to his people, we have two big obstacles, and we see them in verses 15 through 17 where we see that we're hot and cold. Verses 13 and 14 set it up, and now in verse 15, he shows us the big issue. Look with me at verse 15. <clears throat> it says this, In my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. You see, everybody knew back then. Everybody knew. Just like you know the earth is round and the sun is coming up tomorrow. Righteous folk have long, blessed lives. Wicked people have short, cursed lives. And so you look at someone's life and you can tell if they're righteous or wicked. And this verse comes along and turns that upside down. And it owns the truth that we all know, don't we? Many wicked people prosper. And many, many righteous people don't. And I appreciate how he admits at the very beginning, that's frustrating. That's vain. We need to hear that. Because in church world, we often assume a Christianized karma, don't we? You do good, and God gives you good. You do bad, and you get bad. We sum it up with that great phrase that I heard from my grandmother and then from my, my dad, jokingly. He never meant it seriously, but you probably heard it too. God's going to get you for that. <laughs> That's karma. And we've seen it in church world. I mean, I've seen it as a pastor. I bet you have too. Something bad happens, must be a sin reason. 
The, the, one of my most ridiculous favorite ones was seeing someone have a tree die in their front yard. It's a nuisance. It was a big, big, beautiful tree. It made their property values go down. They were, and they were legitimately upset about it. But, you know, trees happen. They tend to rot from the inside. And you don't know. And it, it just died. And this one very earnest, very non-judgmental. This was a kind, kind man. He was just not very theologically accurate. We were at a little coffee with a bunch of men. And he goes, well, he kind of looked at the guy and goes, well, who do you think sinned in your family to cause the tree to die? And I was a very young, inexperienced minister. I hadn't learned to like, you know, have a game face. And I just went, what? Have you even read the Bible? And I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. I, th- I hope I'm better now. I don't know. But see, that's a Christian karma that says if something bad happens, you must have done something bad. But see, the verses right before this tell us that God uses sorrow to help us. The wise don't avoid suffering. The wise become wise in suffering. Christian karma, that kind of believer, looks at suffering and asks, and I've had this question happen to people, well, what unconfessed sin do you have in your life that caused this? Because apparently Jesus only died to forgive our realized and confessed sins. And the answer to that question, by the way, is what unconfessed sin do you have is um, all, all of it. We're terrible at confessing. That's why our, our doctrinal standards are called the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith actually says that we need to, quote, repent of our repenting because we're so bad at it. See, but when we don't fully rest in the gospel, we keep the grace and mercy of God in our past. He got us on the team by grace. Thank God. It's by grace I've been saved through faith, not of works. I can never boast. Amen. He got me on the team, gave me the jersey. I'm here. But now, well, I'm on the bench because I'm not working that well. The grace that got me on the team is not the grace that sustains me. I must sustain me. For my present living, I must maintain my status before God. Which means that how God looks upon us is based on our religious performance. How well my life is going or not demonstrates how good of a Christian I am. Christian karma says only varsity Christians have a good life. And so if you see someone with a good life, you know they're varsity. If you see someone in the church struggling, you know. Ooh, they're JV. In fact, they might even be the freshman practice squad. Now, in case you're not quite tracking with me, I, w- I want to turn to the Irish Catholic lead singer of U2, um, Bono. In his famous 2005 interview, he said this. He said, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. Karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that as you reap so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. See, but when we do depend on our own religiosity, we fall into Christian karma and we think that we can grab the wheel of our life and we can drive it. And when we do that in church world, we tend to jump behind the driver's seat of one of two vehicles. I want to do a little bit of theological education here, so I'm going to put two big words up on the screen here for you, okay? We've got legalism, we've got antinomianism, okay? Antinomianism comes from two words, antinomos, meaning law, so it's against law. So the legalist loves God's law. The legalist is like, give me the rules, 
Give me the rule book. Give me the checklist. I'll check it off. And at the end of the day, I'm a good person because I followed the rules. The antinomian is like, no. They're like, no rules, no right, no wrong for me. I'm free. Let it go. Elsa from Frozen is an antinomian to her core. And we in the church world, we tend to fall into one of those two things. And it's usually expressed in traditionalism and non-traditionalism. Let's jump in and look at legalism first. Look with me at verse 16. He says, be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Or another way to translate it would be, do not make much of your righteousness. Do not be wise in your own eyes. See, instead of living in a wisdom that respects God, resting in his control, this person uses religious behavior to manipulate God into giving them a good life. They've bought into the whole karma thing and they think, well, if God rewards goodness, I'm going to be the best Christian around. And by the best usually means being holding on to very hardcore traditional values. Most people who no longer go to church, who they, they call themselves the deconstructed, they have, they have experienced this and rejected this thinking it's Christianity when they actually haven't experienced Christianity. And I'm just going to own the reality. People like us, th- this is one of our big foibles. We tend to default to dealing with life's frustrations through religious performance, through holding on to conservative traditions. We, we tend to kind of assume in, in church world very often, and even we, we never think it, it just kind of happens, and sometimes we catch ourselves, sometimes we don't. Well, if we don't drink, if we don't use certain words, if we don't watch certain things, if we dress a certain way, you know, if we're just normal about like what humans are, if we're moral, then God will bless us because God likes normal, moral people. I want you to see how pervasive this is, and I don't want to chide, and I don't want to caricature, so I want want to kind of step back and try to be a little antiseptic with this in a way that I found very, very eye-opening. Has anybody ever heard of Phil Vischer? This means yes, this means no. Okay, how about his creation? I got a picture here for you. What's this called? Go ahead. Who's this? Let me hear it. Veggie tails, that's right. Okay, love me some veggie tails. My two older kids, when they were not older kids, they were the only kids. Veggie tails all the time, all the time. Man, if I hear, where is my hairbrush? One more time, I'm telling you. Okay, <laughs> anyway, late 1990s, $40 million a year in revenue. 2003, bankrupt. World Magazine interview about eight years after that, Phil Vischer said this, said he was glad the company went under because he was teaching a false gospel. Here's what he he himself said in that interview. He says, quote, I had spent 10 years trying to convince kids to behave Christianly without actually teaching them Christianity. You can say, hey, kids, be more forgiving because the Bible says so. Or, hey, kids, be more kind because the Bible says so. But that isn't Christianity. See, for the verse 16 person, they're confused right now. Even a little perturbed. Because see, when we have this foible in us in church world, 
God's instructions, commonly called law, but the word Torah in the Old Testament, law is such a bad translation. It's translated more in your mind as instructions. Think of God's revealed will as the owner's manual to the human heart. So God's instructions, they see that not as an impossible obstacle between us and God. Instead, they see it as doable. So get out there and do it because the Bible says so. What's wrong with VeggieTales? See, the legalist doesn't really see God's law as that big of a deal. And so Jesus' fulfillment of the law is really not that big of a deal. It makes for Nike Christians. Just do it. Here's how I put it for the kids in their verse 16. Boys and girls who are still here, you want to look at page 11, your verse 16. Here's what it says. It says, a wise person doesn't try to trick God by acting all good. Even if you have tricked yourself, a life of fake goodness will hurt you. See, it hurts because if God's approval is based on my obedience, I have no security, I have no hope, I have nothing to be happy about, and I don't understand the command of verse 14 to be joyful. It damages us because resting our life on religious performance, it makes us mean. Because if, we're, if it's about our performance, we can't help but compare ourselves to others and rate their performance. It makes us judgmental religious people the people who killed Jesus. And the only deliverance out of this tendency, this tendency to manipulate God, the only way to get out of it is to really rest in the reality of the gospel, which says, obey God because the Bible says so, but you will fail. But Jesus has forgiven you and obeyed for you, and now in Jesus you have the power to obey and ongoing forgiveness when you keep failing at it. See, the good news of the gospel is that in his love for us, God actually credits the obedience of Jesus to us. In Jesus, God looks upon his people as completely obedient to his instructions. We have performed perfectly in Jesus. God could not be more pleased with us. So we rest in Jesus and have joy instead of exhausting ourselves trying to please God through our behavior. See, the overly righteous person thinks they don't really need Jesus' obedience. They got this, and it destroys them. But there's another side too. And we find that side in verse 17. Look at me at verse 17. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Wicked there is a bit stronger than what the original really would, would merit. It's more along the lines of don't act incorrectly. It's, it's, a, it's a word that doesn't carry quite the moral categories as the real word for wicked. It kind of appeals to community standards. What he's saying is, is don't be this person who constantly breaks standards just to break standards. Don't be this non-traditionalist who wants to destroy everything is basically what he's saying. See, at first you read this and it seems the opposite of the legalist, right? Law doesn't matter. Do what you want. You're not under law, but under grace. Verse 17, Christians love to quote that verse. God doesn't care about all that external stuff. It's about the heart. And it expresses itself very often in being non-traditional. These people tend to eschew religious rituals, now, again, I want to be very careful. I don't want to chide and I don't want to caricature because on their good days, these Christians are so great at making sure that we haven't added our own practices to the very simple New Testament call to faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. These people are great at making sure we haven't added, well, yeah, but you also need to do whatever. 
But on their bad days, they want to destroy everything that reeks of tradition, that doesn't feel authentic. They love that word, authentic. And the key to understanding what's really going on in verse 17 is that word fool right there in the text. It doesn't mean court jester. It doesn't mean acting like a moron. It means recognizing that God exists, but living as if he's not there. That's the Old Testament usage of this word. The fool forgets God on purpose. We could say the fool ignores God. These people, they often, they're part of God's community and they live their daily life as if God is not there. And it puts great pressure on other Christians around them to then fulfill them. These type of Christians, they love to use the word community. Their favorite phrase is doing life together. But accountability or consistent church attendance, that's dismissed as, as ritualistic. But when they need God, they immediately grab the God pill and take it to feel comforted in a difficult life. Again, this is kind of hard to grasp onto because this, honestly, this isn't particularly our foible in general. So let, let's look at the kids, verse 17, to see if we can get some wisdom here. Here's how we put it for the kids. It says, a wise person doesn't try to trick himself by forgetting what pleases God. That's foolish and will hurt you. See, the legalist from verse 16 tells you God loves you more when you perform to his standards. Verse 17, people say, God loves you regardless. He doesn't care about standards. Live however you want. Do whatever you want. God will always approve of you. That's not true. And that can hurt you. God loves obedience. And it's the obedience of Jesus to God's standards that saves us. The verse 17 believer forgets that the grace which saves us also changes us. That if we've been born again, there will be fruit. And that's not empty ritual, that's fruit. There will be evidence of a changed life. Now, maybe it's not quite that extreme for you. Maybe, you know, deep down, kind of like me, you don't like rules. You don't like rituals. You're not big on traditions. And so you're tempted to kind of push the boundaries. Because deep down, let's just own it. We just don't want people telling us what to do, including God. We want freedom. See, for the most part, verse 17 Christians have down the fact that Jesus has performed for us. We are free from the law. However, that's only half the story. Our sin, our rebellion offended God. It's ruptured the relationship. But in the gospel, God says, your sin has hurt and disappointed me. So I will hurt myself to forgive you. See, and the realization that God suffered to reconcile us, it tempers our desire for freedom and it changes it into a biblical freedom. Not free to do whatever you want, but free to be the person you were always intended to be. The person who gets the gospel actually flourishes under the freedom that God gives in the gospel. Now, dear Christian here today, examine your heart. Which one of these do you fall into? Ask God to help you rest in the gospel instead of trying to to drive your life. Because expecting the driver's seat in the map, we lose the joy of the passenger seat. So what do we need to do? We need verse 18. We need Jesus to take the wheel. Look at me in verse 18. It says this, It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. 
for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Okay, this is not the Old Testament version of the golden mean. Just don't have extreme views, you know, kind of just be mushy. God doesn't want you to really be dogmatic. Nope, not what it's saying. Or this is not the other one I really like is, well, don't be too serious about your faith. Kind of dabble in some sin a little bit. It's like, mm, nope, flag on the play. No, it's not what it's saying. What's it saying? It's saying we take hold of verse 17 and we don't withhold our hand from verse 16. And so by recognizing both of those errors, holding on to them in the fear of God, we can be released from both of those errors is what verse 18 is telling us. Because both sides, verse 16 and verse 17, they miss this. A verse 16 believer sees God's instructions as a means to get to God. If I do these things, God will love me. A verse 17 believer sees God's instructions as an obstacle between me and God. If I can just get around this, I can get to God. Neither of them see correctly what God's instructions are. God's instructions are not something external to him, but they're an actual manifestation of God's heart. God's instructions are the revealing of his character. They are who he is. This is why so often we see in the Old Testament, especially the book of Psalms, if you've read through the book of Psalms, the hymn book of the Old Testament, you see psalm after psalm, poetry, where the the writer is proclaiming their love for God's instructions. The longest chapter in the whole Bible, Psalm 119, 176 verses proclaiming their love for God's law, God's instructions. And that's the difference. The legalist doesn't love God's law. They exhaust themselves trying to climb that thing to get to a taskmaster God. They have no joy and they're suspicious of those who do. The antinomian doesn't love God's law. They do everything they can to ignore, avoid, denigrate God's law, get around it to get to God. But the believer who rests in God's grace sees his instructions for what they are the demonstration of God's very heart. In the gospel, we get the love of the law because we have the love of the law giver who gave us his son to fulfill his law. Jesus lived the life we should have lived before a holy God. I say that every week because God cares that much about his obedience, about our obedience. His law His instructions are part of his character. He cares about performance to his standards. That's why we, verse 16 believers, need Jesus because only he completely met God's standards, not us. I also say every week, what? Jesus died the death we should have died before a just God because God cares that much about sin. His law, his instructions are part of his character. He cares about violations of his standards. That's why we, verse 17, believers need Jesus because only he completely paid for our violations of God's standards. Holding on to both of those, the life and the death of Jesus is what verse 18 calls being one who fears God. And it's the key to living in joy in a frustrating life where we have no control. We gladly let Jesus take the wheel so we can relish the joy of the passenger seat in life. In that, we then have gospel resources to have the wisdom to have joy in a frustrating life. So that's what this passage says. I just want to ask two questions to wrap up. Christians, which one is your temptation? Verse 16 or verse 17? The answer is both, by the way, but you tend to gravitate towards one of them. 
The solution is verse 18 for you to embrace both in the gospel. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus lived the life you should have lived. Embrace and then come out of verse 16. Jesus died the death you should have died. Embrace and come out of verse 17. Walk in the freedom of being counted as obedient to God's law and being empowered to want to follow his instructions. Non-Christians who are here, I know I've been talking to the Christians the whole time. Thanks for paying attention. Do you want freedom? Freedom to really be who you were meant to be? Then forget everything you think you know about Christianity. I say that every week as well because it's right here in this text. If you've had run-ins with the exacting Christians of verse 16, being the sin police in your life, monitoring your religiosity, I'm so sorry. I've had run-ins with them too. In fact, I've been that person. I was that person for a very long time. What you saw in us was not the gospel. I'm sorry. Because in the gospel, Jesus performed for you so you can be completely accepted before God the Father. Or maybe you need to cast off everything you've called religion. I say that every week as well because it's also in this text. Maybe you've been burned by verse 17 Christians. They seem all chill and refreshing and non-religious, but there's still some intense pressure to perform for them. They still point to something other than Jesus. I'm so sorry. I've been there too. It's exhausting trying to make those people happy. I know. So I just say forget all the stuff. Come out from that and simply place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord. Rest in his work for you and he will set you free to be who you're meant to be. That's the gospel and it's for you. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for passages like this that are really addressed towards your people. When you address our foibles, our idolatries, our sin patterns, and you help us to be free again in your grace. Lord, we are wired to perform. We either try to perform by ignoring your law or perform by fulfilling your law, but either way, Lord, would you help us to come out from both of those and embrace Jesus as he's offered in the gospel as our fulfillment and our forgiveness. Lord, we pray you would help us, those of us who who are yours already, would you help us to walk in a deeper appreciation and joy of the gospel. And Lord, we pray for those who are here today who don't know you. We pray that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, that you would draw all people to him, that you would cause many to confess faith in Jesus Christ, even in these moments. We pray this, Lord, in his great name. Amen.